Hey, Wilder, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Hollister? I'm good. We're going to start a new segment, actually, that we're going to start each week with, which will be news or things around the industry, especially around women. And we're going to start that segment officially next week. But just to begin a little bit this week, do you ever listen to Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard? It's a podcast. I haven't listened to it, but I've heard great things. I love Dax Shepard. A couple of women came in and they've been doing these interviews with women, a lot of them from Hollywood, et cetera. And they did one with Reese Witherspoon, who, as you know, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Reese's, but they did one with Reese and she said this most amazing thing. I uh, said a number of amazing things. You should definitely go in and listen to it. But one of the things she said was that every story has two sides to it. And for the last 50 or 100 years or whatever, we've always seen the male side to a story. And now that women are having a larger role, both in production and writing and everything, all of a sudden we're starting to show both sides of the story. And that's one of her goals is that in any story, it should be clear that both sides should be represented. And I had never really thought about it that way, but I thought it was a marvelous, really insightful thing to say. Yeah, I mean, I think that's hard to do in every film, right? Not every film is or television show is made to represent multiple perspectives. So I think it's a, a great idea in theory, but I'll be curious. I mean, I think we're seeing that unrolling now of seeing female driven and female specific perspectives and I'm loving it. Uh, I think a lot of women are loving it, but uh yeah, she did. I mean, I, sh- I I misrepresented it, actually. She definitely doesn't think that every single thing should show both perspectives. She just wants to make sure that in stories, we do have a side to tell. And she thinks it's an exceptional side. And the other thing she said is it's funny that podcast and influencers are mostly women. Hmm. And if you think about it, certainly on Instagram, places like that, the influencers have emerged and they're mostly female based. And she said one of the reasons she thinks that is, is we're great communicators and we're also people who love to celebrate other people. And Mm. so uh, I don't know. She had some really insightful things about our gender to impart. Great. I mean, I think that's the point of her company. So I'm glad she's out there doing it herself, too. Well, (laughs) yeah. I had to laugh, though, because, as you know, I couldn't help but wonder why she sold it to two men. But I, you know, I'm not going to I am not going to go there. OK, <laughs> OK. Um, so as part of that podcast, they started a new series that is hosted by Kristen Bell and Monica Padman. It's a 10 episode limited series, and it's called We're Supported By. And it's filled with women who are talking about supporting other women. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. And so you might want to uh, go ahead and go over and have a listen. Awesome. I love Kristen Bell. I think she's incredible. So I'll be happy to take a listen to that. All right. And then we're going to lead into uh, the film that we chose this week is Worth, which dropped on Netflix on September 3rd, which is just one week before we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the attack on the Twin Towers and our country, actually. Right. And it's funny because what I realized in starting to watch it is I happen to have been there that day and I saw both airplanes go into the towers. So I know that there's a piece of me, especially on 9-11 that goes to the sea to try to 
maintain my myself. You know, I I definitely, you know, it was it was a game changing moment for me. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so it's hard for me. But when I when it came on, I realized that in twenty years, there have been very few films that have been made about this immense thing, and that's probably because I'm not sure we're ready yet. And I know twenty years later. You know, but one of the things about this film that I found difficult was I'm not sure we're ready to go there. No, I don't think we are. Um, And I think that every film that's been made, every film that's been made about it has kind of not been well received because I think everyone doesn't want to touch it. I think it's starting to come up tangentially in a lot of films, whether that's as kind of a B story or someone that's lost in the, in the towers or what have you, we're starting to touch it as a topic, but I don't think we as a nation want to go there. I I don't think we're ready. I don't think there's a desire to revisit that anytime soon. I agree. I agree. So the film takes place. It follows the primary lawyer who is put in charge of the task of establishing what each family should receive when it comes to their loss from 9-11. And he is tasked with deciding what a life is worth, whether it's the CEO at the top of the tower or the janitor at the bottom. And not only that, but his name is Feinberg and he's a real person. And what I think is sort Mm -hmm. of interesting about him is he wanted this job because he felt that he was really good at helping people understand financially what a life is worth. He had no passion or, you know, I mean, there was no... It wasn't personal. And so he thought he'd be the perfect person to step in and do this, which actually made him the worst person. Because when 3,000 plus lives are lost in a single day, the Mm -hmm. enormity of the pain and the suffering around that is so large that there's no way they can look at that without passion, you know? Well, I also think, and this is part of the arc of the film, but this is his way of trying to do his part, right? He does this pro bono. He takes this on when no, no other lawyer wants to touch this. Right. And what's interesting to me, and, you know, I'm curious to talk to you about this, about the character arcs throughout this story. But what's interesting to me is we're introduced to the world pre nine 11, right? Nine 11 hasn't happened yet. And I remember, I think anyone who was over the age of six remembers where they were when the towers fell. I, you know, I'm revealing my age here, but I was a sophomore in high school and I was, I was on the West coast. So I was on my way to school uh, when the, the news kind of broke over the radio. And I remember all day in class, there wasn't really class that day. All we did was sit and watch the television Mm -hmm. and wait for news. My daughter is the same age as you, and in mm-hmm. New York City, she was at a private school in New York City, many of whom had kids whose Family. parents were in the towers yeah. who didn't come back. And they took the phones away from the kids, and they brought them into the chapel for the day. We couldn't get back to them, and a lot of those parents called those kids on those phones to say goodbye, mm-hmm. and the, the, ki- the oh. phone wasn't with the kids. I mean, everybody's experience is different, but those mm-hmm. that were closest to it there's no way you get through that. You know, there's no. no way that that, you know, that that doesn't have a have a bigger play. And it's yeah. funny, she, she rode horses. And just to give you some of the depth and the width of this all, there was one young girl she rode with whose mother had started back to work after raising her 
through the eighth grade. Mm -hmm. Her mother had started back to work that day in the towers and she was lost. And the father was a retired SEAL, Navy SEAL. And he Uh went away for six months and nobody knows where he went or what he did, but he just went off on his own. And God knows, I'm telling you, somebody paid. You know, know, everybody's story was different. And when you take 3,000 people gone and then the stories of all those families and the fact that anybody thought they could apply a formula Mm -hmm. to how those lives should be compensated is just a shocking moment, really. Well, it's fascinating when you watch the film and I'm going to try as much as possible to kind of decipher the film versus all of our personal experiences. And I I will say being near Los Angeles, there were a lot of families in our orbit who were affected as well because those planes were headed for the West coast. And when you're watching the film, there's, there's a, a meeting at Congress they don't really say who the Congress people are and, and who the people are in, in the room. But Michael Keaton, who is our lead in this. Who's playing, he has the same personality role as Spotlight, as he did in Spotlight. Do you think that's why he was chosen for this role? He's very good. I don't very think it's good. the same at all, actually. Oh, I think it's totally the same. I, I think it's a very different kind of arc. And I think he calls it out as well when um, when he compares himself to Tate Donovan's character. And I think they have opposite arcs in this, which I find really interesting because in that in that meeting with the Congress people, Congress is trying to intervene to bail out the airlines, essentially, is what's happening here. Well, the airlines is threatening that if something happens, and again, we don't want we don't we're not going to give a synopsis of this whole film, but the airlines is concerned saying that the economy will falter if they don't help them out. So I think there's a lot of dominoes that they're expecting will fall if the victims here are allowed to sue. Right. Right. If they're allowed to sue the airlines, where does it stop? Right. At what point are they no longer allowed to sue the manufacturers of the building and so so far and so forth? Um, And in that meeting, it's very interesting because Michael Keaton is saying every life is worth something. He's the one coming out and saying we can do this. We can figure out a way to do this. And Tate Donovan's character is the one saying, are you the one who wants to come up with the formula of what? one person's life is worth. And Michael Keaton says, that's what I do for a living, right? Like he handled the Agent Orange case. He handled all of the cases in which the government had to settle these kinds of situations before. Michael Keaton's the one who steps in and says, here's what your life is worth. And and I'll say my my fiance's father died from cancer from Agent Orange from fighting in Vietnam, right? So this story for me was very interesting and also very personal. And it's fascinating to see those two characters swap throughout the course of the film, right? And Michael Keaton does his best, Ken Feinberg does his best to keep the reality and the emotionality at arm's length in order to allow him to do his job. So all of that's true. So basically the trajectory, one of the reasons I think it's a similar character is in Spotlight His character in Spotlight had ignored what was going on in the Catholic Church for many years. He knew there was a problem, too. He just sort of sat back. And then all of a sudden, he has his own epiphany of, I can't let this go. And so I think that there's a lot of epiphanies in that. But it's funny because 
everything always goes back to two things. It's either Clarice in Silence of the Lambs or it's Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. And you may remember that in Legally Blonde, Professor Stromwell, who, you know, is amazing, says, the law is reason free from passion. And I recommend knowing before you speaking, the law leaves room for interpretation, but very little room for self-doubt. And one of the things that is so interesting about how this lawyer is portrayed is he has no self-doubt until he does. And that trajectory is so important to, I think, the arc of the film of him realizing in this epiphany moment that he just can't apply a formula to this situation. And I don't disagree with you in in his trajectory. I'll say I found it overly simplistic. I did too. Um, And I felt it was, it was (laughs) interestingly formulaic as a film. Yep. Uh, (laughs) And I was a little sad that they didn't utilize Stanley Tucci more as a character. I think he's the standout performance in there. He's the heart of the film. He's the only he's lost someone in the towers. He is affected by this. He comes to this meeting. They they have a general town hall and he's the only one who says, you know, I want to hear what the, what the lawyer has to say. But he's also a leader. He is able. He is a leader. Yeah. But he's also because he's in so much pain, everybody else, all these 3000 plus families that are in pain can attach to him because he really does hear them in a way that Feinberg can't, which is all parcel and good. But here's the part I can't figure out. So I think they would have been better served if they had taken five or six families and given us the backstory and the future story. And really, they only did one. It was like you got Mm -hmm. this brief snippet on five families, and then you got this one family, which is not the family I might have chosen. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't want to give this away, and we're not doing a synopsis of the film. But he does delve into this one situation that's sort of interesting, but maybe not. Well, there's there's actually... Two, because one is a, a gay couple that aren't um, married um, because they can't be married yet. We don't see him. Yeah, we we really only meet him once. We You're are right. not part of that story. It's a again, it's on the phone. It's very brief. Mm-hmm. It's probably all of three minutes. That's what I mean by they give us a ton of snippets and then they delve into one story where Feinberg actually goes and visits her and then she comes mm-hmm. at the end and the, and the basically the movie ends with her story, but. I think they would have been better served. And I can't help but wonder if trying to be respectful and trying to respect the fact that our country is still feeling that pain so deeply, I think they were afraid to tread too heavily in it. I don't know. You know, I think that's an interesting take from it. What I took was that this was about the case, right? And they touched on as much emotionality as the case would allow and as much as would get the case to where we needed to be as an audience to understand Michael Keaton's perspective and how he was able to utilize his wide ranging powers. And I'm not saying that's the right way to have approached it, but that's kind of how yep. I rationalized why they did what they did. Yep. I was disappointed by how white the cast was. I thought there was quite a lot of opportunity <laughs> to have cast diversely. And there is there is a commentary on class in the negotiations here that those who are who have lost loved ones who were not the CEOs in this are are more than willing to sign on to this case. And those who are this who are the families and loved ones of the CEOs are not because they believe they're owed more. And it's an interesting take on this that 
what is a life actually worth? Well, that's why I think the movie is really not about a 9-11 as much as it's about what a life is worth. And there is one scene that I think is worth remarking on. And that's where the uh, brother of a firefighter, I think, stands up and says, my brother chose to go in to save your ass, basically. And so you should be getting $2 million and I should get 250000 I don't understand that. You know, like if any, and I think he's pointing mm-hmm. out that if anything, his life should have been worth more because he chose to try to go save the life of this person who just happened to be there. You know, at any rate, it does make you, they, they're they very good at laying some groundwork to ask yourself that question, is one life worth more than another, which is really the underlying issue here. What's interesting about all of that additionally is who wrote the film? It's so funny. I just pulled it up in front of me because I was going to ask you. Max Borenstein wrote this Not film. who I would have chosen and not who I expected. Okay, um, and I was very impressed. Godzilla? Yeah. This is a guy who does big tentpole, fun crazy movies, right? This is the guy, he wrote Godzilla, he wrote Kong Skull Island and Godzilla versus Kong. Like that's his bag is, and I will say like Kong Skull Island is actually a really good movie. I really enjoyed that movie and I was really impressed that they were able to pull that off. But but it's a Godzilla movie, right? Like, sorry, that one's a King Kong movie. But to go from that to this is quite a big jump. It's so funny you're saying that because I was saying to my, I was just going to ask you, why did they pick him? You should know the answer to this. Wilder, what was that about? Yeah, I yeah. felt like he must have brought the story, right? I'm assuming he's the one who found the book and decided he wanted to do this. Ken Feinberg wrote the book, by the way. It's his his experience. Sarah Colangelo is the director. And she, she previously did a film called The Kindergarten Teacher with Maggie Gyllenhaal, which is very good, very dark. Very dark. I liked it, but very dark. Yeah, very dark. I think she did a really nice job with this. I honestly was expecting a bit more of a finale. I don't think we really got, you know, the the closest thing I can kind of compare this to is probably JFK without the like tension. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, Josh Singer, who wrote Spotlight, who wrote The Post, who wrote The segments of the West Wing. Bridge of Spies. I, I, I thought, why did you not bring him in? But also, you know who I would have asked to do it? I would have asked... Aaron Sorkin? No, well, <laughs> I, I would ask Aaron Sorkin to do anything, but no. Actually, I don't, know that's, I don't know that this is about dialogue, so I'm not sure I would have, but Matt Damon and... Ben Affleck. I thought Ben Affleck and Matt Damon could have done this the way they did... Goodwill Hunting? Yeah. I think the Goodwill Hunting, a combination of of story and dialogue and laughter and Siri. Mm-hmm. In other words, I just think the way they did all that, although some people say they didn't really write it, but I don't I can't say. But I think they could have done a good job. I think this was the wrong choice. I agree with you. Isn't that funny? We both came to the same place. Well, I I don't know that he was the wrong choice. I just thought he was a different choice from what you would have expected. But I also, this felt like a play to me. It felt like it could have been a play. Didn't even think of that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, There's there's a lot of it that's cinematic. And they, you know, I think Sarah does a, a good job of, tying in the events of 9-11 without miring us there in the sense of the towers falling and the actual events that happened and and miring us in that time period. We kind of moved through time 
pretty quickly after the events of the towers. But I do think that so much of this is interior. It's one-on-one interviews. It's sit down at a law table, you know, conference room table, having a conversation of what's the best formula and how do we do this? They chose to show the interviews, for example, actually interviews in a room and very short ones, I might add. And Mm -hmm. it seemed to me rather than that, the interviewer should have come in and then we should have seen what she was talking about or he was talking about. It would have been much, I thought, a much stronger way to play. Um, When you're talking about like their lives prior to the towers, sure. But I think I was pretty moved emotionally, especially when, um, when you're hearing from the, the young man who, who lost his lover, who's not entitled to anything, yeah. right? Because they're not married. Um, well, no, because he lives in Virginia and other states. And he lives in Virginia. Yeah, exactly. um, I did feel a lot of that emotion and a lot of that emotion is inherent. It's baked in because we're yeah. not, we as a nation haven't processed this yet. I don't well, think. Clearly not. I can tell you, I had a hard time and I kept thinking, I'm not sure we should be going. I, I'm not, I almost felt like I was a voyeur into something that I didn't want to be present for. I'm, I'm not ready. I can tell it's you. It's really fascinating if you watch the newscasts from that day when the news breaks, because the world we were in before this event happened is completely different (laughs) from the world we entered as soon as that first plane hit that tower. It feels like a 1950s reboot when you're watching the morning news on those broadcasts. Now, tell me what you thought about Amy Ryan. I love her. (laughs) Well, it's funny because Michael Keaton and Amy Ryan, you know, they previously worked together on Birdman. Did you? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Michael Keaton's fantastic. I really enjoyed his accent, though I did have to turn on subtitles. And that's that's coming from someone who works with a lot of New York Jews and loves a New York Jewish accent. But I definitely had to turn on the subtitles because I couldn't understand everything he was saying. But I love Amy Ryan. I think she is able to communicate so much with her face and with her body language. But she's so subtle. And I I adore her. I think she's an underestimated and understated taste uh, that I I could watch all day. I loved her in The Office. I think she's a great comedian. I think she's got great comedic timing. And I think she can do drama very well. Well, everyone's talking about it like Spotlight and that it should be up for a lot of awards. I'm not sure it holds together well enough to do that. But again, I think it's topic-based rather than actual performance. Although I think Stanley Tucci was good, but he was only on screen, what, 10 minutes maybe all told? I Not very long. I mean, Stanley you know? Tucci, let's be honest, Stanley Tucci steals whatever movie he's in. Whatever he's in, yeah. I wanted to ask you, do you think they could have switched roles? I think they could have, but I wouldn't have cast it that way. Interesting. Personally, I think I, Michael I Keaton. They were interchangeable. I think either one of them could have done the other role really well. Stanley Tucci has this ability to be vulnerable without seeming weak in any way. And I am sure Michael Keaton is capable of that too. But we've seen that from Stanley time and time again. And he's so reliable in that. And his, his ability to stare into your soul and communicate a message without saying anything is kind of unparalleled. Uh, And Michael Keaton plays that straight white man detached, not affected emotionally, purposefully very well. And then coming around purposefully as well. I think his arc is easier to buy in this because of who he is. And I think Stanley Tucci just brings a warmth to every role that he does. 
so beautifully that I would have had a harder time believing he was emotionally not invested. You know, it's funny because they lay out Feinberg's passion and that he has a soul by the fact that he listens to opera a lot with headphones on. Big, bold, major opera. Mm -hmm. I think it starts with Nessim Dorma. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, it reminded me of Philadelphia when Tom Hanks, there's one moment when Tom Hanks is listening to opera as he's just falling apart from dying of the terrible death with AIDS. And I realize I don't see opera used that way very often. The only other time I can recall is with Philadelphia and Tom Hanks, and it was highly successful in that moment. But I don't think it layered in properly to be successful now because in the Tom Hanks in Philadelphia moment when he turns on the opera, it's at the end of a party, and he'd put on this happy face for everybody, and everybody thought he was okay, but he was violently ill. And everybody leaves. He turns the the lights down. He listens to opera as he just sits there and cries. So you could actually see the passion within him. And I thought it worked beautifully then. And we went in and we went out of it. She kept placing opera in these moments that weren't led into the operatic moment. And I felt like it was a, it was a disturbing interlude rather than helping me. Oh, I actually thought it was a juxtaposition. Honestly, he is listening to opera to block out the rest of the world. Whatever he's doing, I felt like I was, again, intruding on the moment rather than understanding where it came from. Sure. But what what I'm saying is she's using it as a device to allow him to block the rest of the world out. And this is a character who desperately needs to tap in to what's happening around him. And rather than utilizing the emotionality of the opera, he's using it as a crutch to allow him to disengage. And I understand that. And and I felt that could be a very helpful tool. The way she did it, the way she took us in and out of it, I didn't think was seamless. I felt it was, yeah, jerky. Well, I thought I thought that was purposeful. And I think the scene where Stanley Tucci enters his office, his waiting in his office and the, and the opera is playing is to show the juxtaposition between the two characters because Stanley Tucci taps into, he knows exactly which recording this is. He can comment on everything that's happening within the music. They share and that to, in common, yeah. They share that in common, but also Michael Keaton uses it as background music, whereas Stanley Tucci is sitting there actively listening. Right. That one, actually, I think she succeeded, but it's used four or five other times. And I I did not find it. I just didn't think it worked. But, you know, um, well, I, I think for the tool she was using it for to allow Michael to be cold and distanced, it worked for me. But it wasn't it wasn't for the purpose of what the opera actually was. Right. She was using it as a as a tool right. rather than to invest us in what the story of the opera was. Right. I get where you're coming from. Yeah. I just don't think she used it well. I don't I didn't I found it fair again. enough. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah, we don't agree on that. Can you imagine? That's okay. fine. Also, but I, I did I did want to ask you about the ending. Were you satisfied at the end of the film? Were you? Absolutely not. It was no, like, I, was expecting, here? I, know. I was expecting I was expecting a scene in front of Congress. I was expecting some Something. some finale. Right. And and I think emotionally we kind of wrapped up. Right. That was the story they were telling. And they they wrapped up that story. But I was I was waiting for our denouement. It just never came. Now, did you think when it first started, I thought, okay, there's going to be a montage at the end of some of these families. And I'm so glad they didn't. I'm glad they didn't. But they also um, 
they kind of list where Ken Feinberg's life went after this, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I kind of wish they'd given us a little bit more information on that, but it was also, it was powerful enough in and of itself, but because the ending was lackluster to me, yeah. I, I kind of was left with like, Oh, okay. That's good you for know, him. But, but look, you know what? At least they tried and at least they ventured where none have gone before. And I do think this movie is going to open the doorway to allow other people to start to tell the stories or try to anyway. And I think that's a good thing. I think 20 years, especially because the next generation's coming up and they don't have a memory. So it's important because it's so embedded in our memory that they have some sort of tools to see what happened. Would you agree? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's kind of and and this isn't the same thing at all, but it wasn't until the man in the glass box came out that the Eichner trial happened that you really started to hear yeah. Holocaust stories. Yeah. And similarly, and this is very interesting, but similarly with Saving Private Ryan, veterans didn't talk about what happened? They came home and they lived their was lives. Was that a pivotal movie for them? I didn't know it that. It really was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because fathers could go with sons to the theater and see the experience that they'd had, it opened a doorway to allow these families to finally hear the stories of, of those who had survived World War II yeah. as veterans. Yeah, exactly. So maybe this is a pivotal film to allow us to start to talk about 9-11 and the effect it's had on this, especially now that we've left Afghanistan, right? Maybe that chapter is starting to close. I hope so. So Wilder, there were some other aspects of this movie that were sort of new to me, you know, like there were also complaints and people who wanted publicity for the mistakes that were made. Did you think that was a big part of this whole thing? I think they glossed over it and we didn't get answers to that when the firefighting brother comes in and complains about they don't want the money. They just want his story told because they've been complaining to the FDNY for years that their walkie talkies didn't work well. He thinks that the reason his brother died is because he didn't get the message that they needed to get out of the building. And was that fixed, right? Was, was there fault in those who built the towers and knew that there were structural issues, right? Um, we don't get answers to those things and we don't. And by the way, there are 10 other, I mean, keep in mind, there was an attack on the towers 10 years earlier. And what happened was there were a lot more uh, CEO types in the towers 10 years earlier. And when that, when the building was attacked, then they moved the tech people from Midtown down to the trade center and they moved the CEO types out of the trade center. In other words, they knew it was a target. They did. They knew it was a target. And so did the CEOs. I mean, no, of course they did. Well, but very few companies left their big wigs down there. And a lot of the people that I knew who perished, they were all tech people. All the tech groups were down there. And also the Brent had plummeted after the first attack 10 years prior. So there was a lot of things that could have been looked at for sure, you know, mm -hmm. much differently. I don't know. I, I, uh, I think that's really interesting. Did you think it belonged in the movie, though? Well, what I think belonged in the movie is acknowledgement of the fact that all of the first responders who became sick afterwards were eventually taken care of in a separate commission. Yeah, they kind of address it, but they don't really talk about it. But the point, those are all sidebars that I'm not sure they just didn't cloud the issue, which really is what's a life worth. And I think if they'd stayed with that issue, 
you know, instead of going off on some of these tangents, maybe that would have been better. Whatever it is, there was just too much in there and not enough of any of it. Agreed. But I wanted to end this with Feinberg wrote a 41 page (laughs) paper on it. On the movie? No, on what is a life worth? Oh, okay. I'm not surprised. I'm surprised it's only 41 pages. I I just want to say I didn't read all 41 pages, but I did scroll through it enough to be able to say, I thought we should end this segment with, uh, toward the end, what he wrote, which I thought was very helpful. And he says, um, and this is his words right off the page, and you can find it at Feinberg, What is a Life Worth? If you Google that, it'll come up. But he says, my administration of the 9-11 fund provided me firsthand on-the-job training in better understanding the soul of America. Whatever flaws there may be in the collective personality of our nation, the American character includes an overwhelming generosity and degree of compassion unmatched by any other country at any other time. The 9-11 fund was America on stage engaged in a bravura performance for all the world to see. I witnessed the reaction firsthand every day when meeting with undocumented worker families in Manhattan and foreign claimants in London. Their response was the same. America is giving me $2 million tax-free. Why? What's the catch? Will I be deported? Do I have to give up my current citizenship? This must be a trick. But there were no tricks, no hidden traps, no adverse consequences. The money was available, a gift from the American people, a type of vengeful philanthropy aimed as much at the terrorists as the recipients. America would not be cowed or defeated by the horror of 9-11. On the contrary, the people of the United States would respond not only with muscle, but also with compassion. This will-show-the-world attitude helps explain the fund. The nation would show no quarter in pursuing the terrorists in Afghanistan and around the globe. It would also undertake an equally determined effort to rescue the fallen and comfort the grieving. The 9-11 fund was not just about saving the airlines or restricting lawsuits. It was also about the nation speaking with one voice and demonstrating the best of the American character.